Welcome to this episode of Sound Bites, a podcast series produced by the National Psoriasis Foundation, the nation's leading organization for individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In each episode, someone who lives with psoriatic disease, a loved one, or an expert will share insights with you on living well. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. My name is Shiva Mosevarian, and I'm here today to discuss triggers and the management of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis flares with dermatologist Dr. Ahmad Shatil Amin, Associate Professor and Director of the Psoriasis Program at Northwestern Medicine and rheumatologist Dr. Eric Ruderman, Associate Chief Clinical Affairs for the Division of Rheumatology, also at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago. They are both co-directors of the Multidisciplinary Psoriasis and Psoriatic Arthritis Clinic at Northwestern, and together they provide a collaborative clinic approach to addressing the management needs of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, which we'll learn more about in today's episode. Dr. Amin's clinical and research focus is on the management of psoriasis, especially in the use of immunosuppressive and biologic medications. Dr. Ruderman's clinical focus is on psoriatic arthritis, spondyloarthritis, and rheumatoid arthritis. Welcome back, Dr. Amin, and welcome, Dr. Ruderman. It's such a pleasure having you both on Soundbites today. Let's start with a question for you. What, in your opinion, is a flare, and how would you characterize a flare of psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis? Dr. Amin, can we start with you? I think there's a lot of definitions of what a flare exactly is. But what I would describe as a flare is someone who has psoriasis that has sort of come back or gotten worse in a significant way. And this worsening of their psoriasis is lasting for more than a month. I think that's kind of a good place for us to start in terms of what a flare is. It's basically a worsening of someone's psoriasis greater than whatever their baseline state is or whatever their baseline state is while under medical therapy. And Dr. Ruderman? I think it's not very different for the arthritis. There really is no good definition. There's been some effort in recent years to try to come up with a consensus definition, which would be helpful in looking at some treatment studies or following treatments in long-term registries of patients. And the, the challenge is there is no consensus. There is no clear definition. And it's basically... Much as Dr. Mean said, it, it is patients whose arthritis symptoms are controlled with therapy, and for whatever reason, they've lost that control. And it may be short term. We don't really think of somebody who has a bit more pain for a day or two as particular flare, but something that's more persistent, doesn't have to be a whole month, a week or two. The other potential definition that has been batted around is thinking about, is it severe enough or persistent enough to warrant considering a change in treatment. And so I think that's a reasonable way to think about it. It's a person who's disease under control and no longer is sufficiently well controlled such that you might consider either adding or changing to a different therapy. Great point. Thank you. So another question for both of you. Could you describe what some of those symptoms may be pending the type or location of psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis? Yeah, for the arthritis, you have to remember that when we're talking about psoriatic arthritis, we're talking about three things. Patients can get arthritis, what we think of as arthritis, which is pain and swelling and stiffness in a joint, but they also get enthesitis, which is pain 
at tendons where the tendons insert into bones, often near joints. And then finally, they can get pain in their spine, particularly the lower back where there can be some inflammation in and around the joints that move your spine. And so depending on which of those areas is an issue for any given patient, that can be where they may develop symptoms of a flare. And it's not always the same place, although people tend to be fairly consistent. People who have more tendon issues continue to have those, whereas people who have low back pain or don't have low back pain don't necessarily get that years down the road. And I would say that's the similar for the skin too. I mean, people, when they flare, they tend to flare where their existing plaques used to be. So if someone had really bad scalp psoriasis, usually if that's well controlled and if someone's having a flare, it will tend to be a common place where patients will flare. Occasionally, we do see flare-ups happening in, in areas outside where someone's psoriasis typically is. And, and that's usually a sign that someone's baseline psoriasis is really changing and worsening. That means that their psoriasis is getting more significant or to a different level that might require different therapies. And Dr. Ruderman, how long could a flare psoriatic arthritis last? And are flares frequent? Fortunately, not very frequent once you find the right therapy for someone. That's one of the biggest challenges we have is to find the treatment that really gets their disease under control. But fortunately, once we do that, either because of the nature of the disease or because of the nature of the therapies that we use, people tend to respond in a way that's pretty durable. They continue to respond over time. When they have a flare, it actually often means that for whatever reason, that particular medication is no longer working as well for them. And then the flare could last as long as it takes until we change their medicine. Occasionally, we try some short-term interventions with anti-inflammatories. And sometimes if the flare is mild or the increase in symptoms is mild, we think we can control it over a week or two, and then hopefully it'll settle back down. But often, an increase in symptoms that we would consider a flare is a message to us that it's time to think about other treatments. And Dr. Amin, a similar question for you. How long will flares of psoriasis last? I'm assuming severity of disease is a factor when managing flares of disease. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's right. And I think there are some people who might have just a little bit of some more psoriasis than they typically have. And, and that might only last a month or two and things might settle down. Sometimes for some patients that can be seasonally related. I think, again, when someone has worsening psoriasis and if it's significant, and if it's persistent, it's lasting for more than two or three months, and it's getting worse over time. That's a sign that, as Dr. Rudin was suggesting, that this is probably someone's new baseline state. And we probably can't expect this flare to kind of get better on its own just with time unless we actually do something to turn that around. And that usually means change of therapy or adding on therapy. But occasionally, we do see some people who have more transient flares that are sometimes just related to short-term stress or even infections that can sometimes last a few weeks and then turn around in less than two months. But again, I think that flares can be mild and last for a few weeks, whereas for some patients, they can be significant and last for several months and gradually get worse over time. So in the Chicago area, people are lucky because the two of you are involved in a collaborative multidisciplinary clinic setting, meaning multiple healthcare needs are addressed during appointments. Can you please explain how this approach works and what a typical appointment is like? 
how is this approach ideal for the management of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis? I'll feel that to start with, and then Dr. Mean can chime in. We've been doing this clinic and using this approach for many years. And the rationale is that from the perspective of the FDA, psoriasis is one disease and psoriatic arthritis is another disease. There are medicines that are approved for one and there are medicines that are approved for the other, and they're not always the same medications. But the truth is that 25 or 30% of people with psoriasis will have some component of arthritis as part of their illness. And pretty much everybody with psoriatic arthritis will have some degree of psoriasis because that's part of the underlying way in which we diagnose the psoriatic arthritis. And so it makes a lot of sense to address these issues together. And the way we set up this clinic is to do just that and to recognize that medications all work differently. And there are some medications that seem to work better for the skin. There are some medications that seem to work better for the joint symptoms. And then fortunately, there are a lot of medications that work quite well for both. So how we manage this clinic is the patients come in, we see them together, and it becomes basically a three-way conversation between the patient, Dr. Mean, and myself in terms of picking the appropriate therapy for that individual patient. And it allows us to do that in real time when we're all together as opposed to putting the patient in the middle who goes to see their dermatologist and the dermatologist makes one recommendation and then they go to see the rheumatologist a month later who may or may not agree with that and has a different recommendation and the patient gets put sort of in between. It's a bit of a game of telephone. We are able to do that all together collaboratively and it works terrifically. This clinic is almost the ultimate team approach as we have myself as the dermatologist, Dr. Ruderman as a rheumatologist, but we also have our rheumatology fellow and our dermatology fellows also there present and learning. And so our patients have the fortunate experience of having a lot of doctors and physicians with them. And I can't emphasize here how productive that collaborative approach in the exam room with both Dr. Ruderman and myself together with the patient. I mean, the patient sort of can see both of our thought processes as we're discussing the best way to manage both their skin and the joints. And I will say, as a dermatologist, I've just learned so much from the rheumatology side of working with Dr. Ruderman and think hopefully appreciates the same from the skin side to the point where I can sometimes anticipate almost what he's going to say or think. And I just really feel like it's almost like two minds sort of working together in real time, trying to figure out what the best therapy plan will be for the patient at any given time. Yeah, certainly seems very efficient. And the patients really enjoy it because they really get to make their case. They get to tell us what's happening to them, what's important to them at that point in time. And then we work together to find treatments that are going to address all of that. And that just is not just efficient, but in the end, the patient gets the right kind of therapy that they need. So what do you recommend for our listeners who may not live where a combined clinic setting is available? Where can they go to find such a clinic? And what can they do to help coordinate care if it's not available? In many cities, there is an option and you can look around for that. But when there isn't, I think that one of the things we've taken away from this clinic is that what's really important is that the rheumatologist and the dermatologist communicate with each other in making management decisions. And that's a little bit more of a challenge if you're not in the same room at the same time, 
but in a patient who doesn't have access to this kind of clinic and more and more places around the country, largely in, in large community settings, have access. But when there isn't, I think it's important to try to establish care with a dermatologist who has a good working relationship with a rheumatologist in the area or vice versa, so that those the decisions can be coordinated, even if it's not in real time at the same time. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And just say, I think sometimes your dermatologist or your rheumatologist may have a close working relationship with another colleague whom they can easily communicate with. And so if your dermatologist refers you to one of their rheumatology colleagues specifically, that may mean that they have a close working relationship with them, which makes communication easier. And I would say the same thing if your rheumatologist refers you specifically to a dermatologist. Sometimes the communication is often easier. Collaboration is easier if the dermatologist and the rheumatologist know each other well and communicate often. And again, a lot of big cities do have these combined clinics. Often they're housed in academic medical centers. And so if you have an academic medical center nearby, you should call and ask to see if they have a combined clinic that has both a dermatologist and a rheumatologist who treats psoriatic disease. There's a group called the PACMAN, which is a collaboration of dermatologists and rheumatologists who have these combined clinics. That's www.ppacman.org, and they do have a list there of institutions that have this multidisciplinary approach. And do you think telehealth is an option? It can be. It's a little bit more challenging because... For both the skin and the joints, you really need to see what's going on to understand the magnitude of the involvement. And so it can be helpful during the course of therapy. If we have somebody on treatment and we're trying to sort of follow up and make sure they're continuing to do well, it's not the best for initial treatment choices. And given what you've both said about flares, once you see someone in a combined appointment who isn't a flare, How do you both discuss what may be the cause of the flare? What's that conversation like? I think the truth is we don't always know what triggers and what causes a flare. And to be honest, once somebody's in a flare, once their disease is worse, the reason for which that happened is a lot less relevant than just getting them better at that point. Sometimes a flare or worsening disease is because the medication they've been taking has lost its efficacy and they've lost response and they started to get either more joint symptoms or more skin disease or both, then the conversation really sort of pivots to try and understand what aspects of their their disease are worse so that we can begin to look at other treatment options that might address those. It is a question that a lot of patients ask, well, why is my psoriasis worse? And as Dr. Rudman mentioned, I think the honest answer is a lot of times we just don't know. So take, for example, a patient who has always just had mild psoriasis all their lives, and now all of a sudden for the last three to four months, their psoriasis has gotten worse by 10 times. They went from maybe having one or two small plaques to now being covered 8% of their body surface area, 10% of their body surface area. And the honest answer is we don't know why that is. For some patients, sometimes we can possibly trace it back to some stressful event that happened. In some patients, sometimes it's an infection or viral infection. But I would say in 80% of patients, we don't know why someone who's had mild psoriasis for many years all of a sudden now has worsening psoriasis. And for patients who are currently on therapy, who were well-controlled and now are experiencing worsening 
psoriasis on their skin. And oftentimes that's because their existing therapy just no longer is working that well. You may ask, well, why is that? And there's a lot of reasons why medications that once worked well no longer are controlling someone's psoriasis. And we don't know exactly what the reasons are for treatment failures, but some of that can be from antibody formation to drugs. Some of that may be just the psoriasis and the immune pathways have sort of found a way to get around the drug. So a lot of times when someone is on therapy, the flare is happening simply because their therapy is no longer working as well. As Dr. Rubin mentioned, when we get to this point, patients have questions about why they're flaring. We don't have the best answers. The best approach really is to move on and find the therapeutic that will help get their psoriasis under control. And sometimes we have to figure out from patients, right, is it really their skin that's worse or is it really their joints that's worse? Or if it's both that's worse, what aspect of their disease is at that moment bothering them the most, right? Is it the skin or is it the joints? Because the answers to those questions are really going to impact how we move forward in therapy. So, Dr. Amin, you mentioned stress, which we know for some people is a big trigger for their disease. How do you help your patients learn to cope with managing stress? Do you call in other specialists to help your patients cope with their stress? I think all those things are important. I mean, I think if someone's like undergoing stress, by being able to identify that and making sure so we're working with their primary doctor so that they access the right resources for stress management and, and access the right resources if they have other comorbid conditions such as depression, anxiety. But the honest truth is, unfortunately, no matter how much we sort of deal with the stress, that's not necessarily going to get their psoriasis better alone by itself. And unfortunately, I haven't found a de-stressing therapy that is going to alone get someone's psoriasis better. So I think all those things are important globally to improve someone's overall life and health, but it may not necessarily be the answer to get the psoriasis better. It's hard. I mean, it's stress is a is a big issue for a lot of people. And, and I don't know that I would say, at least for the arthritis, that it necessarily is the cause for the flare for the arthritis getting worse, but it certainly plays a role in the amount of pain that people have. And I would love to say to someone, well, stop having stress in your life. Man, that's just not a realistic thing to say. And so we work with them and we encourage them to follow up with their primary doctor to see if there are medications that may help. We encourage them to follow up with social workers, psychologists, if that's helpful, if they're trying to deal with some stress issues that they just can't make go away. But I think just having the conversation is probably the most important piece. And Dr. Ruderman, for psoriatic arthritis, is being overweight a factor in the inflammatory process of joint disease? We think it is for a couple reasons. There are some lines of evidence that suggest that people who are more overweight are more prone to getting arthritis, to getting psoriatic arthritis. There's some evidence that people who are the more overweight you are, the less likely you are to respond to therapies, including some of the biologic therapies that we have. And certainly when you have arthritis and joint symptoms, weight puts a lot of stress on your joints and creates a lot of pain. And so it can be part of the discussion. It's not an easy part of the discussion because many people who have gained a lot of weight, it's not so easy to take it off. There's a lot more to that. It's not as easy as saying to someone, you need to lose weight. But I think it does become part of the discussion. And I think recognizing that can play a role in their symptoms is a, a key piece of that. And we try to at least talk about that as much as we can. Thank you, Dr. Ruderman. And along those lines, for you both, what's your opinion about diet, particularly as a trigger for psoriatic disease? 
Oh, boy, that's a good question, because I think a lot of patients are curious about diet and how that impacts their skin disease. And I think there's really not very much good data out there or any really good studies out there that really inform us about diet and psoriasis and whether there are certain diets that make psoriasis better or worse. And so what I tell my patients is there's really no good evidence out there that one with psoriasis has to avoid certain things or eat certain things that will clearly make their psoriasis better. That's backed by really any evidence. But weight issues can be an issue with patients with psoriasis. And as Dr. Ruder mentioned, sometimes it can play a role in response to medication. We know that patients with psoriasis sometimes are a little bit more prone to having associated metabolic syndrome. In general, I think it's probably a good idea for patients who have psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis to eat a balanced diet. That probably includes lots of fruits and vegetables and maybe a little less meat. And I think that's just a general recommendation for overall health. But I don't think we have great evidence on exactly what foods to avoid or eat that would make someone's psoriasis better or worse. Yeah, I'd agree. People are always asking for what's the magic bullet in terms of diet, and there really isn't any. There's an increasing body of evidence that suggests that the bacteria that you carry in your gut may have an impact on immune conditions like psoriatic arthritis, and that maybe modifications might help. The problem is it's in very early stages, and we really don't know on a broad level how to advise people on dietary changes, because it's going to be very individual ultimately, and there's going to be genetic components to it. So my recommendation to people is I, I don't think these very strict diets that eliminate a lot of foods from daily routine end up really solving the problem for everybody, and they're very difficult sometimes. But on the other hand, if there are foods that somebody eats that seems to aggravate their joint symptoms, then the simple answer is to avoid those. But it's not the same for every person. So we hear a lot about drinking alcohol and its impact on psoriatic disease. Dr. Amin, is there a recommended daily limit? I'm not aware of any recommended daily limit. I think drinking in moderation probably is not going to have a negative impact on most people on their psoriatic disease. Excessive alcohol intake certainly may promote inflammation. And it's possible that excessive alcohol use can make someone's psoriasis worse or, or make them a little bit less responsive to therapy. But I'm not aware of any recommended daily limit necessarily. Maybe Dr. Rudman has some input on that. Part of this has to do with treatments and some of the medications that we use, like methotrexate. We're careful about overuse of alcohol potentially because of the impact on the liver. But the truth is that it, with reasonable, modest social drinking, even that's not an issue. So I, I don't have any clear guidelines for people. And Dr. Ruderman, is there any evidence to suggest that changes in barometric pressure or other weather-related causes impact joint pain? A lot of people say their arthritis is more painful when it's colder in the winter and when it rains. Yeah, I mean, that, that happens. I don't think there's any firm evidence as to what the cause of that is. It, probably not barometric pressure because your joints are actually under negative pressure to begin with. And so changes in atmosphere pressure probably have little, if any, impact at all on your joints. It seems to be changes in the weather that bother people the most, and honestly, we just don't know why. We recognize that that can be an issue for people, but we simply don't know why that is. And for you both, is it possible certain medications can trigger a flare of psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis? And if so, what are some of those common medications that may trigger psoriatic disease? 
I can start with that. I would probably say the most common medicine that we see that sometimes triggers psoriasis, at least, is probably systemic steroids. I mean, we often sometimes see people who are on high-dose systemic steroids for whatever condition that they have. Sometimes we see it in our clinic in patients who are on systemic steroids for their GI condition. And when these steroids are tapered and turned off, sometimes we see psoriasis flaring in that setting. That's probably the most common one that I see. Certainly, I think, you know, if you look at textbooks, textbooks will say that patients who are on beta blocker medicines to lower their heart rate or their blood pressure and patients who are on lithium are at risk for developing psoriasis flares. So I, I would say I don't See that in clinic and common practice a whole lot, but those are, I would say, the two most common listed potential medications that can trigger psoriasis. Yeah, I would agree, and I think the steroids can be an issue, but I would certainly encourage people not to, if you need steroids for some particular reason, like your GI disease or, or asthma or something else, you got to do what you got to do, and you shouldn't not take the medications. And I would say, my experience over the years is that as we've gotten to have better medications to treat both psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, then the impact of a steroid taper withdrawal of steroids is a lot less because the medications that you're already on for your psoriatic disease mitigate the effects of reducing the steroids. Excellent to know. Thank you so much. So Dr. Amin and Dr. Ruderman, We've spent some time addressing flares and triggers of psoriatic disease, as well as use of a collaborative multidisciplinary clinic for managing psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. How do you address treating the flare to achieve clearance or minimal disease activity? What's your treatment strategy together? It's a discussion. As simple as that, it really is sort of looking at any individual patient and saying, well, what are the issues for you at this point in time? Is it your skin? Is it your joints? Is it both? And then identifying therapies that will do the best job of controlling exactly those issues. I think in some cases, the joint disease can drive things a bit more because somebody who has really active joints, particularly if you have erosive or damaging arthritis, that kind of damage does not recover. Whereas the skin can often recover, as bad as the skin can be, if you finally get to the right treatment. And so it really is a discussion. Some people are bothered more by their skin. Some people are bothered more by their joints. And we let that sort of drive some of our decision-making. But I don't let people who have very active joints, particularly when I see changes on an x-ray, I don't let them say, well, that doesn't bother me that much. I want to focus on my skin because I'm worried about the long-term issues of not addressing the joint disease. So the strategy is really a discussion to understand which components of these are bothering them now and which medications are going to best address those aspects of disease. Some of the biologics are going to be much better for skin disease than some of the others. For joint disease, we don't really have a huge differentiation, although some of the different medicines we use are a little less effective than some others. And so that all gets sort of weighed together and then we come up with a strategy that addresses all of those issues. Absolutely. And I think we obviously would like everyone's skin to be cleared. We certainly try to shoot for that. But as Dr. Ruderman mentioned, I think sometimes when someone has really bad joint disease or joint disease that's really creating a significant impact in their life or has signs that may be more serious based on x-rays, that often will take priority. And that sometimes means 
that we get someone's skin clear, but may not get them totally clear because we're sort of not necessarily always able to use the drug that's necessarily the absolute best for the skin, right? We're sort of balancing that and choosing a drug that might be a little better for the joints for that particular patient. And a lot of this also means that we kind of really take into account the patient's history and we look back to see what medicines the patient has been on for their psoriatic disease and what medicines have worked well for their skin versus what medicines have worked well for their joints. Because sometimes if someone comes in with a mild skin flare, but we see that, hey, this patient has been on seven different biologics and has finally found one that's working okay for their joints, sometimes we may not be as quick to change their therapy for a little bit of skin that's flaring. We may try to manage that in other ways, like with topicals. So it really means taking into account the patient's whole history, especially if they have a complex history where they failed or not responded to multiple medications. I can't thank you both enough for such an informative discussion about triggers, flares, and management of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. It would certainly be nice to see more access to multidisciplinary clinics, such as what you provide your patients. Do you have any final comments you'd like to share with our listeners today? I would just encourage people, if you don't have access to a combined clinic like that we have, just advocate for yourself. When you see your rheumatologist or you see your dermatologist, if you have joint disease or you have skin disease that you don't feel is being addressed as well as you'd like, talk to them about coordinating with someone in the other specialties so that you can get to the place that's going to really control your disease. So I think the answer is, and as much as I would like to say, your docs are going to take care of all this and always will, you really do need to advocate for yourself and make sure that they understand what is concerning you and make sure they guide you to the right kind of treatment. I would just second what Eric said. I don't have any other comments. He put it really well. Thank you, Dr. Amin and Dr. Rudiman for your comments and for being here with us today to provide such an amazing episode about triggers and flares. For our listeners, learn more about managing pain, triggers, and flares of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis by calling our patient navigation center at 800-723-9166 or by emailing education.psoriasis.org. And finally, thank you to our sponsors who provided support on behalf of this program activity through unrestricted educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb, Janssen, Novartis, and UCB. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us in a couple weeks for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Sound Bites on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Ghana, Google Play, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, please visit psoriasis.org or contact us with your questions or comments by email at podcast at psoriasis.org.